Good morning, everybody. Uh, Last uh, month, Jenny and I celebrated our 42nd anniversary. Thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) Come on, 42 years. It's a big deal. It's a big deal, right? 42 years. And to celebrate, we took a short trip to two places that were on our bucket list to visit, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia, both beautiful places with rich history. I mean, both cities, you can... You can tour houses and structures that predate the Revolutionary War, and both cities played significant roles in the Civil War. Uh, Fort Sumter uh, in Charleston is where the Civil War started, and Savannah is pretty much where the Civil War ended. Officially, it ended at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, but but, uh, a major contributing factor to the surrender of the the Confederate armies was Sherman's March to the Sea. Maybe you've heard of that. Um, It's where where, um, General Sherman led 60,000 Union soldiers on a 285-mile trek from Atlanta, Georgia, to Savannah. Uh, And that, that, that march was intended to break the will and demoralize Uh, Georgia's civilian population to the point where they just would abandon the Confederate cause and and just kind of give up, and it it worked. Uh, but But at the beginning of the Civil War, nobody thought the Civil War would last as long as it did, or claim as many lives as it did. Virtually everyone thought the war wouldn't even last a year. Three months after that initial attack at Fort Sumter, there had yet to be a major battle. And in fact, the North didn't really, initially didn't even consider it a civil war, but more of a southern insurrection that in time would be put down without, uh, without huge cost to life or property. But in July of 1861, the Confederate army had amassed about 30 miles from the capital, and a battle seemed inevitable. It's known as the First Battle of Bull Run, uh, but it also came to be known as the Picnic Battle. Here's why it came to be known as the picnic battle. Because a mass of spectators traveled from the capital to the battlefield with picnic baskets and opera glasses to watch all the excitement unfold. I mean, again, any, anyone, everybody expected this to be a quick, decisive victory for the Union Army, putting, putting an end to the insurrection and to the war. But everyone was in for a huge shock. As the battle began, initially things seemed to be going in favor of the Union Army, but the Confederate reinforcement, uh, reinforcements arrived, and the battle turned in favor of the South, and Union arm, uh, the Union soldiers began a hasty retreat, effectively drawing the battle into the picnic zone, where suddenly gunfire and cannons where cannonballs were whizzing past spectators who began fleeing alongside the retreating Union soldiers. The picnic battle. See, what everybody thought would be a quick, easy, decisive victory for the Union Army turned out to be a bloody defeat, uh, leading to the, the bloodiest, most costly war in Union history, claiming the lives of over 620,000 Americans. Why did I share that story? Besides it being kind of an interesting piece of trivia, here's the reason I share this story this morning. Because today, today, we are in an epic war, all of us. And it's really not that difficult 
to, to see and understand. Life itself often feels like a battle, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, our nation is more divided than it's been since the Civil War, but that's not the kind of war I'm talking about. That may be part of the war, but the war I'm talking about is actually spiritual in nature. It's something you, you all feel. We all feel on the inside, a war that leaves you feeling battle-weary and beaten down and assaulted, not, uh, not so much assaulted in your body, but in your soul, in your mind and spirit. Internal conflict, raging, peace is elusive, and you just sometimes wonder if you'll muster enough energy just to keep going another day. If you've ever wondered, why does every day feel like a battle just to, just to stand, stay firm in your faith, just to keep following Jesus? Well, perhaps the reason it feels like a battle is because it's actually a battle. You are in a war. And it is a battle to stay true to your faith. <clears throat> it's a battle to keep following Jesus. It's a battle to do the right thing when it's so much easier to do the wrong thing. To keep being responsible when it's so much easier to be irresponsible. To return good for evil when it's so much easier to return evil for evil. It's a battle. And the reason it's a battle is because you're in a war. And while, you know, I, know, I realize that, that for many of us, Military metaphors are a little uncomfortable. Um, but those Christians living in the first century who, who wrote the documents and letters that have come to make up what we now call the New Testament, they didn't share our distaste for, for such metaphors. They regularly used such imagery and verbiage in their writing. And the reason they did is because it is an accurate description of the reality that you and I live in. We are in a war. There is an epic battle taking place right now, and you, you are at the center of it. And that war is playing itself out in, in many different ways. Some ways that are very obvious, but other ways that are actually not so obvious at all, and in fact, in ways that you perhaps are completely oblivious to, though you can feel it's its toll on your soul and your spirit. So, so what is this war? What, what's, this, you know, how do, what's this war about? How did it get started? Who's, who's battling whom? And, and what is the nature of this war? Well, like every war, this is a war over who is going to rule. If, if we were to zoom out, way out on this, zoom out as far as we can zoom out, what we're talking about is who is the rightful ruler of the universe? That's really at the heart of this war. Who is the rightful ruler of the universe? Many of you are familiar with the masters of the universe, but they are fictional. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you had to find out eventually those are fictional characters, okay? But, but, so who is the rightful Lord, Master, Ruler, King of the universe? Now those of, he, of us here gathered today... Uh, most of us here are, are, are among those who affirm that to be God, right? You know, of course, there are, are a lot of people who claim that God is fictional, which is to be expected in, in such a war. But you and I and most people listening today are firmly convinced that there is a God and, who is the creator of, of everything seen and unseen, and he is the rightful Lord and master of the universe, how then did this war break out? Well, that is a tragic story, 
and one that here at Hope we have referenced often. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 3, but let me just summarize it in this way. In a nutshell, God created the world, gave human beings the keys to the world. The devil tricked human beings into handing the keys over to him, and he's had them ever since. And as a result, God's authority and rulership in this world is being contested. And you see that in the world today, don't you? God's moral authority, his plan and plans and purposes for mankind, his will, his ways, even his very existence is being contested, so much so that this is what John, one of Jesus' closest followers, is what John wrote toward the end of his life. He, he wrote this. He said, we know that we are children of God. And let me just pause there for a second. How many of you here know that you are a child of God? Let me see your hands. You, we know that we are children of God. Uh, of all the things that we can know, all the facts, information, all the knowledge you could ever hope to know, this has to be among the most valuable and consequential bits of knowledge that you could ever hope to have. I am a child of God. I am a child of God, which means I am no longer at war with God. I used to be, but I am no longer. I am no longer contesting his moral authority over my life. I'm no longer contesting his rightful claim upon my life, my resources, my time, my possessions, my talents and abilities. No, in all of these things, it is my, my primary purpose and ambition, my, my joy and privilege to advance his rulership and, and reign however and wherever I can. Because he is my heavenly father, and I am his child, and, and that's what I live for. Thy will be done. Not mine, but thy will be done. So John writes, we know that we are children of God, and here's what else we know. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. This is what John writes toward the end of his life. And we're thinking, the whole, what? The whole world? under control of the evil. What about all those verses like, you know, Psalm 24 that says, the earth is the Lord, uh, the Lord's, and, and all, of, all it contains. Well, see, that's just it. It rightfully belongs to God. God is the rightful owner, master, ruler, Lord. But that rulership, lordship, is being contested by the devil with the foolish cooperation of human beings whom God put in charge, but who have abdicated their responsibility and handed the keys over to the devil. Thus, there is a very intense, messy, tragic civil war going on in, in the cosmos today. And you and I are at the middle of it, which may explain why you often feel so beaten down and battle-weary. Now, Paul points out, the Apostle Paul points out a sobering reality in his letter to the Christians living in Colossae, a city called Colossae in the first century. And this is what Paul wrote. He said, once you were alienated from God, and that's true of every one of us, once we were alienated from God and we were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I mean, we are innocent now, not by virtue of anything we have done, but by virtue of what Christ 
did. But we were at one point enemies of God, part of the rebellion against his rule and authority. But look closely at what Paul says here. He says we were enemies in our minds. In other words, we considered ourselves enemies, God's enemies. We considered ourselves God's enemies, but he never considered us his enemy. Even though we were acting as enemy agents in rebellion against him, God's posture toward us has always been to rescue us and deliver us and to redeem us and then deploy us as agents in his army. And it's very important for us to keep that in mind because this is what it means. It means this, other people are not our enemy. Other people are not our enemy. Even if they, in their thinking, in their mind, consider God, consider themselves God's enemy, or perhaps even consider themselves our enemy, they are not the enemy. They are maybe perhaps prisoners of the real enemy who has taken them captive to do his will. So, so then, who is our enemy? I mean, you know, what's the most important thing to know when you're embarking in an epic battle? most important thing to know is who the enemy is, right? That's, that's, that's the one thing you can't afford to be fuzzy about, is who the enemy is. I mean, otherwise, you might wind up shooting arrows at a person that God has sent you on a mission to rescue. That's, that's not how you win a war. Paul, in his letter to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus in the first century, he writes this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. People, you know, people are, flesh, you and I are flesh and blood. People are flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, our enemies are evil spiritual entities, not, not people. We are not waging war against other people. Rather, our war is against the evil powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces in the unseen realm. So make no mistake about it. And I know for some of you, are, you're going like, wow, there's a lot of spiritual... You know, every, we all know, everybody ha know, has no problem referring to, you know, the spiritual. We all have different ideas about what that is, but the Bible sheds incredible light on what is actually going on. We are in a war, a spiritual, epic, epic spiritual battle, a very real war. Now, there's good news we are assured victory. As a child of God, you are on the winning side. In fact, the war's already been won. When, when Jesus died on the cross, he carried our sin and rebellion with him to the cross, putting to death those things in his body. And when he rose from the dead, he defeated death and evil once and for all. The devil has already lost. The war has been won. Can I get a hallelujah? Yes. Right. But why then does the battle continue? Why is it still such a struggle? And why does it often feel like not only am I not winning the battle every day, but losing the battle and maybe even losing the whole entire war? Well, here's the reality. Even though the war is already won, there's still enemy territory to reclaim. 
captives that need to be set free, people, addicted people that need to be freed from addiction, prisoners that need to be rescued, just like you and I needed to be rescued. And even though the war has been effectively won, we are still in enemy territory. We are still in the contested zone, the contested zone being planet Earth, where the evil forces of this dark world are still operative and wreaking havoc, which you can see just by looking around. Which is why uh, so many of the New Testament writers frequently referred to us Jesus followers as exiles. We're, 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 we're exiles, we're foreigners, we're aliens, aliens in this world, strangers in a foreign land, covert operatives in a world which lies under control, under the control of the evil one. But yeah, we are assured victory. But, but here's, here's the question that I kind of want to put out today. Here's a question. Will you or someone you love be a casualty in this war? Will you or someone you love be absent when we all march together in the victory parade? And now casualty, by the way, a casualty in, in the military sense refers to anyone who's no longer on the battlefield for any reason. It could be due to injury, illness, capture, uh, desertion. It doesn't primarily mean, you know, just KIA. It, it just means that you are no longer able to report for duty and no longer on the battlefield. We are assured victory but how can we make sure we don't become, we don't become a casualty? Can we be sure that we don't become a casualty or someone we love become a casualty? You know, now this right here is something that our first century New Testament fathers in the faith warned us about earnestly and often. In fact, let's look again at that verse we just looked at a few minutes ago uh, from Paul's letter to the Colossians where he wrote this. He said, once, we're going to read again, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if, if, the big if there, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out to you in the gospel but listen you're at war we're in a war and you have a very real and determined adversary and your adversary is working very hard to get you to discontinue in your faith and loosen and disestablish you and move you away from your hope in the gospel the devil has schemes, he has strategies, really good ones. And, and Paul says that, that wise followers of Jesus are not unaware of his strategies. In his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer sums up the enemy's strategies very succinctly. And, and here it is, uh, here's the devil's strategy according to John Mark Comer. This is really good. Um, the devil introduces deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires What's a disordered desire? Well, a disordered desire would be any desire, any fleshly desire or appetite that we pursue to the exclusion of God, outside of God. Devil introduces deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society, in, in this dark, fallen world that lies in the control of the evil one. 
I, let me tell you, that right there today is worth the price of admission today. I mean, that, that is, that's the fundamental strategy of the devil, the same strategy he used in the garden in the very beginning and the, still, the one he still uses today, deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Remember what he did in the Garden of Eden. He introduced a deceptive idea to Eve, didn't he? Did God really say, did he really say that? You shall surely not die. Deceptive idea, God cannot be trusted. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He's trying to hold something from you. If you do things his way, you'll lose out on something good. Those deceptive ideas played to Eve's desires. She saw that the fruit was good, looked good, smelled good, probably tasted good. And according to her, you know, new little friend, the talking snake, it was going to make her wise. Uh, you know, she was, she was going to be smarter than anybody else. There's only two of them on the planet, but she's going to be smarter than anybody else. And how could God not want her to have more wisdom? And, and would he really not want her to be happy? Would he, really not, would he really want her to say no to something that is obviously so good? See how these desires, we, we often think that God wants me to be happy. Would he really want me to say no to something that, that's so good? And, that, and the pursuit of our disordered desires, desires pursued out God's, outside God's plan and design, become normalized, even applauded, celebrated in our, our dark, fallen world, which lies at the control of the evil one. The enemy's war strategies are very effective. They're very, very effective. But, but, God has a strategy too. You want to know what God's strategy is? If it were me, I, I would not have this strategy, but I'm not God. But God's strategy is you. You and me. That's God's strategy. We are together God's strategy for winning this war over who's going to rule. After Jesus died on the cross, when, when he was raised back to life the third day after his crucifixion, he appeared to his disciples on several occasions, and Luke writes this, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now most of us know what subsequently happened, a very famous thing in the Bible. Luke describes it in Acts chapter 2. Let me just summarize it. Ten days after Jesus said this to his disciples, Ten days later, they were all gathered together. They were together in one place, in one room, and something amazing happened. The Holy Spirit filled that place, filled their hearts, gave them supernatural boldness and supernatural joy, which caused them to spill out onto the streets. And Peter, the same guy who just eight weeks earlier, fearing for his life, denied he even knew Jesus, that Peter stood up and gives this fiery and passionate sermon, and 3,000 people that day become followers of Jesus, and the church, the church is born. The church is brought into existence, and suddenly, these disciples of Jesus all saw clearly what God had been planning and, and all those things that Jesus had said to them that they'd been a little fuzzy about began to make sense. 
Like when Jesus talked about how he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail it against it. And, and how, how that they would be famous in the world because of the way that they love and serve one another. And perhaps most poignant of all, that prayer that he prayed during the last meal he shared with his disciples that night, the same night he was, he was betrayed and the, the night before his crucifixion where he was with his disciples and he prayed this, Father, my prayer is not for them alone. And he's, all right, at this point, he's, he's referring just to those disciples who were with him at that moment. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's, that's you and me. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, God's plan, his strategy from the beginning was to form his community, a community that would be characterized by incredible Unity, what Jesus just described, unity like the Father and the Son uh, shared. A, a, a unity where they are unified in their commitment to Him and to one another. A kind of unity that would demonstrate to the world who Jesus is. And in fact, when Paul the Apostle described that unity that God intended for His community, His church, he used an anatomical metaphor when Paul described this unity, he said it would be as if we were all members of one body. That's an incredible amount of use. Like we're all members of one body. In fact, in his letter to the first letter to the Corinthians, Christians living in Corinth, he wrote this. All of you together are one body of Christ, and each of you is a separate and necessary part of it. And then Paul goes pretty deep into this metaphor in explaining in great detail how together we are the body of Christ. In other words, together we are the hands, the feet, the eyes, ears, mouth of Jesus to the world. We are together God's strategy to bring redemption, healing, and reconciliation to the world. But the operative word here is together. Each member connected to other members, each doing their part, each drawing life from and giving life to the other members of the body. That's how God designed a body to work, and that's how God designed the church to work. Now, I realize we just switched metaphors here, but let me try to tie it all together here. We're in a war, and the battle is fierce, but God has a winning strategy, and it's His church whom the Apostle Paul described as the pillar and the foundation and pillar of truth. In his letter to his young apprentice Timothy, he, he wrote this. He said, I am writing to you these instructions so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth in a world that lies in the control of the evil one, a world that seems increasingly devoid of truth and increasingly prone to deception. 
The church is the hands and feet of Jesus in a world desperate for his healing and forgiveness. And we are his body. And the church is the community of Jesus followers who come together in unity to encourage and build up one another, to speak into each other's lives, and to receive the truth from Scripture, the truth that sets us free and gives us life and provides direction and instruction for us, not only as individual members of a larger body, but together as a body, as a community, a family. It's where we all come together to receive our, our marching orders, so to speak, from our Lord and King Jesus, the rightful King and Master of the universe. And it's, it's where we come together and to worship and express gratitude to our Lord and Father, and in doing so, are refreshed and strengthened in our spirits and equipped for the battle that continues to rage. To receive something, it's, it's in coming together, we receive something that we cannot receive anywhere else. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I love this quote. He says, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you may say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. See, let me just shoot straight here. Our coming together, like we are today, is a direct order from God. We don't respond very well to direct orders these days uh, from anybody, including God, and for some perhaps especially from God, uh, and that speaks to the effectiveness of the enemy's strategies. But yeah, God was serious enough about this, that he actually made it one of his big ten, one of his ten commandments, right up there with you shall not murder and you shall not steal and you shall not commit adultery was the command, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And Jesus, contrary to this idea that Jesus came to kind of just do away with all the commands and the rules and all that stuff, Jesus actually affirmed this command when he said, man was not made for Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man, God made the Sabbath to benefit, to benefit humanity, men and women, because he knew that we lived on a battlefield and he knew that the tactics of the enemy would wear us down and demoralize us and try to move us away from firm devotion to God's plans and purposes, distract us with all kinds of things that look good and smell good and promise to benefit us in some way. God knew that the enemy's schemes would leave us battle-weary, weak, and ineffective, if at all possible. So he commanded us to set aside one day a week to come together and to rest from the battle and to receive encouragement and life in the context of worship and fellowship together with people with whom you share the same commitment, the same common purpose, godly values, truth, grace, love. And since the time of the Ten Commandments, what, well, two thousand three. Three and a half thousand years. Since that time, the Ten Commandments were given. Men and women of faith have been faithfully setting aside one day a week to come together in His name. In fact, in the early church, those first few weeks and, and months in the church, they actually met more often. They, they actually, initially it was daily, Luke records. They met daily, but always at least one day a week set aside in His name 
to worship him together in unity, to serve and encourage one another, devote ourselves to the teachings of Jesus, learning the truth and receiving strength and be, being equipped for battle, for the battle that we are called to participate in. The writer of Hebrews uh, writes this. He says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. His promise is ultimate victory. And let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And, and here's, here's the thing, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Especially as the day of his return is drawing near. <laughs> you know, you don't need to be a meteorologist to know what rain is. You don't need to be a geologist to know what an earthquake is. And you don't need to be a theologian to know that the day of his return is drawing near. The writer of Hebrews says, as the day of his return is drawing near, it is going to be more and more important that you come together. You do not neglect the coming of yourselves together. The question is, will you be ready to march in the victory parade? God wants you to be ready to march in the victory parade. Or do you risk becoming a casualty? Or will someone you love become a casualty? Parents, parents, bring your kids to church. Bring your kids to church. Let them see this is a non-negotiable for you. Let, let them see that you are eager and willing for them to participate in all kinds of activities and events that will help them grow and develop during the week. You know, grow and develop in a lot of ways. But on Sundays, on Sundays, well, Sunday, Sunday is sacred. Sunday is holy. Sunday is a day that we set aside and devote ourselves completely to our spiritual growth and development, which is more important by far than any and all other kinds of growth and development combined. Spiritual development, spiritual formation. Parents, your kids are watching what you allow, what you allow to be put ahead of God in your life. They're watching you. We're in a war. And we need to be regularly equipped and trained for battle. We need to be built up, encouraged, and connected to other members of the body from whom we can draw life and to whom we can give life, sharing life together. Amen? I'm going to ask the band to come back up. One of my favorite pastors, Andy Stanley, tells a story about a time that he was with his family visiting China, and they were touring a factory in China. And at the end of the tour, the tour guide asked if anybody had any questions. And much to everybody's surprise, the, the, tour, guide's, the tour guide's assistant, a young Chinese woman who had been shadowing the tour guide as an apprentice, uh, apprentice the, this young woman spoke up and said, I have a question. And, and then she directed her question actually to Andy Stanley, the one that was on the tour. She says, I have a question. Uh, she said, Pastor Stanley, why doesn't everybody in America go to church? See, her story was that she, she gets on a bus every Tuesday to make a two-hour journey to, to a Bible study, an illegal Bible study in another village, and then makes the two-hour journey back. And she said, you know, sometimes I don't have the bus fare, and sometimes the bus isn't running. But, but I've heard that in America, there are churches everywhere. So why doesn't everybody in America go to church? And Andy Stanley says, I didn't have a good answer for that. Other than that, we have forgotten. We've forgotten. We've allowed ourselves to be moved away, be it ever so slightly, 
from God's plans and purposes for us as his church in the world. And, I, and it, would be, it would be difficult to prove this, but I believe eternity will bear this out, that as people left the church to pursue other things, as people allowed other things to preempt the place and priority of gathering together with people of God in the kingdom of God for the purposes of God, as they allowed other things to become more important on their calendar and in their lives, not only did the church, the body of Christ, grow weaker, but the world around us slipped further and further into the control of the evil one because we are God's strategy to defeat the work of the enemy in this world. That does not have to be our story today. See, God, God has guys like me stand up here in places like this and give talks like this to wake us up and to warn us and, and, and to call us, to call us back to the basics that we learned in boot camp. And the good news is that I want to leave you with is, is we know that we win. We know that God wins. God's church is victorious. The gates of hell do not, will not, cannot prevail against the church. Just please don't be a casualty. And don't let your kids be a casualty. Or worse yet, one of those spectators who brings a picnic lunch to watch the battle from the picnic area. God wants to arm you and equip you and prepare you for the final glorious phase of this battle that we will be victorious in. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you know as well as I do, this is one of those messages where I'm preaching my heart out, but the people that don't really need to hear it are here. <laughs> They're here, and, and so I pray that they would feel your smile and, and your pleasure that they have made a good choice in being at church today. And Lord, that somehow these words would reach to those that aren't here today. And I, I know that somehow as we speak your words, they do. They, they find your way into the hearts of the people that need to hear them. And Lord, I pray that you would call us all, all back. And even those of us that are here today and maybe have, have kind of wandered away and drifted away from our commitment to being a part of, of, a, of a healthy, vibrant church body. Um, if they don't have one, I pray they would find one and that they would, they would commit themselves to it and be a part of this amazing work that you are doing in the world, Lord. Um, you have engraved this invitation on your own body and you have extended this invitation at great cost to yourselves. Lord, may we heed your invitation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.